chapters 44 and 45 tonight. If I get my jogging shoes on, we'll get through this. I have a lot of cross-references, um, pages, so, you know, but we won't really hit those until 45. So we're going to breeze through 44 as that is more of, there's really not much you can add to it. It's a story, and you really have to read it for what it is, um, and that's the best you can do is read it and understand it and enjoy it, and, um, but 45 is where we get into the picture. While I'm waiting, um, thank you all for your care and your concern for the, uh, for the loss of my mom. Um, uh, we're a funny group of people, the Dirks. We don't respond to situations the way most people do, so I'm trying to do my best to just be a normal, grieving person. Thank you. But honestly, it was just exactly how we were all hoping she'd go in her great chair that she loves and has been sitting there in that chair for the last eight years, um, by her high school sweetheart of 57 years, um, no tubes, no hospital, nothing. And just kind of, well, it wasn't super smooth, but it was smooth enough to where we didn't even notice what was happening. And all of a sudden, I don't think she's alive anymore. And that's what you want. And it was a beautiful thing. And my dad's happy and relieved and joyful, knows where she is. She knew the Lord, so don't have to worry about that. Awkward moment at a funeral, you know. We didn't even have a funeral. We just don't, it's just, she's gone. So that's just kind of how it went. So if you find me acting like, well, he just, I think he's in denial. I'm really not. I'm really not. I'm really okay. And my dad's really okay. And my sister's really okay. And we're really, Yeah. We're okay, you know, like super okay. So thank you, though, um, for the cards and the food and the, and the stuff. So uh, knock it off. All right, there we go. <laughs> Chapter 44, Joseph's Cup. Joseph's been testing his brothers that they've been running into this famine, and we realize from these two chapters that they're on year two of the seven-year famine, okay? He's going to explain that to us as he says, I've got five more years of it. So we're on year two. They've run out of food twice now. They've come back the second time. Joseph has had them sit down in the order of their birth. That'll be important tonight. And they were astonished at that. Um, but now it's time to go home, and that's where we pick up our story in chapter 44. And he, Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his grain money. So he did according to the word of Joseph, according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city and were not uh, yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, get up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? <laughs> you know, uh, you have done evil in so doing. And he's going to say that a couple times about this dumb silver cup. Joseph doesn't practice divination from a dumb silver cup, in case nobody figured that out. 
but he wants them to think that he practices divination from this. So this is like the ultimate brother trick on the brothers, you know. Uh, he's playing this up, but it's a test, obviously. He doesn't want them gone. He doesn't want them to disappear from his life. He's trying to get them back is the idea. But he's got to figure out where their heart is. Remember the first test he gave them um, was, what if I kept Simeon back here and you guys can go? You know, how's that going to play? And they didn't return for a while. Now, Joseph doesn't know that it was his dad that kept them back. But as far as Joseph, they're, really, they're willing to throw another brother under the bus for their own safety, right? And so he's trying to discern, are these guys the same guys that threw me in the pit? Or have they changed? Are they different? Okay. So he's working out a plan here. He's working out a plan. Now, he says that divination, he's going to say it again later on. That's what I believe the astonishment, where that comes from in last week's story. When he set them in the order according to their birthright, being an Egyptian, how in the world would you know that? He's telling them, I can see all things, and I'm able to set them out in an order. And they're like, oh, you know, it's to spook them a little bit, to put them, on, put them back on their heels, okay? Now, I suppose we have lots of opinions on whether he should be doing this. Is he lying? Are there, are there sins being committed here? I don't even read that stuff or think that way, you know? I just reading the story is like, he's playing something out. He's got to know. And I don't know that there's a right way or a wrong way. How do you figure out whether somebody's heart is right? God says he never tempts us, but he certainly puts us to tests often. And what I see happening in this story, since this is a picture of Christ, right? What I see in this story is I don't think he's ever stopped doing stuff like this for us. To bring out of our hearts what's really there, to show us, to bring us to a place from being a kind of person that would throw someone in a pit and sell them off to slavery, to a place of remorse, self-sacrifice, um, thinking of others more than you think of yourselves. And that's what's happening in this story. So he throws that out there. Uh, here's what I've done. You put the, put the cup in there, put it in Benjamin's bag, and, and then when you catch up with them, you know, blame them, you know. Verse 6, so he overtook them. And he spoke to them uh, these same words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. So they're super confident none of them did it, right? Super confident. I mean, overly confident. This reminds you of that moment when they said, hey, if we don't bring back Benjamin, you can kill my two sons. Not a great plan, uh, but I understand the enthusiasm and you want to try to put emphasis on it. And so that's what will be your slaves and you can kill the one who's, who's got it. And he said, now also let it be according to your words. I've heard you. He with whom it is found shall be my slave and you shall be blameless. Just tweaking it a little bit. Let's not kill him. I mean, it's just a silver cup, for goodness sakes. We'll just make him our slave, and then you guys can go your way, because it's not your problem. You didn't, you know, you didn't do it. All right. So then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched, and he began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes. And each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. They got to walk back. 
but they tore their clothes. That's the most important part of the story here. Tearing your clothes back then, we don't really do that so much. Well, maybe, maybe some people do, but that's a sign of mourning. Some would actually rip all the clothes off, put sackcloth on, you know, a humble sort of outfit, uh, and then throw ashes on their head to make them look like they're really poor and disgusting and uh, kind of beat yourself up a little bit. And so that's the idea. Well, they tore their clothes in mourning, which is a good thing. It's, it's their way of showing they're really, really uh, broken up about it. I mean, most of you know that, but this is what Joseph's looking for, is why I emphasize it a little bit tonight. He's looking for some torn clothes. He's looking for not just, sorry, I got caught, not just, I can't find a way out of it, but some genuine remorse. I got asked the question when I spoke so uh, vehemently about just believing. That's all there is to salvation, just believing. And I'm afraid some misunderstood me. As if, well, that's not all there is. Even the demons believe and tremble. That's not the same thing. Believing on Jesus for your salvation means you understand that you need a Savior, why you need a Savior from your sins, and so on. It's all there. Believing in Jesus is a completely different thing. Everybody knows Jesus was a historical figure. That's not what I was talking about. I'm believing on Jesus, and that is truly all you have to do. Believe on his work at the cross for your sins. You can't add to it. You can't accessorize it. You can't make it better with your good works. It's complete, total, and amazing what happened at the cross. Believe on Jesus Christ. Well, when we look at this story here, the tearing of the clothes shows genuine repentance. It doesn't help the matter. Benjamin's not saved. It's not going to remove, it doesn't take away the bad consequences that are coming. And yet, we're still showing the remorse. There's a repentance here, is the idea. There's repentance here. So they head back to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Well, I think he's using that word pretty loosely. He does have pretty good dreams, and he can tell you what they are. If you, even if he doesn't have the dream, remember with Pharaoh and, and, and the baker and the, and the cupbearer, he could tell you. So divination, sort of. I mean, he hears from God exactly what these things mean, but it's not like what we think. When I think of divination, I think of some gypsy lady, you know, with jingly in the incense and the crystal ball. That's what I think of. And that's that. And he's letting them believe that too. I mean, he, he certainly is. He is playing it up, but that's what he's getting at. Don't you know that I know that these things, don't you know you can't hide anything from me? Is the idea. So that's a good starting point for the next conversation we're about to have, he says. Don't you know you can't hide anything from me? Then Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also, with whom the cup was found. We're all your slaves. There's no way out of this. There's nothing we can say. I mean, we're guilty. You found us out. And he's not talking about the cup. He's talking about Joseph. It's finally come to a head. The guilt these guys have been living with for who knows how long, 20 plus years, of selling their brother out of bitter envy is now coming to a service. Like, you know, this is exactly what we deserve. 
And so if Benjamin stays, we all stay. We're just going to be your slaves. That's just how it is. They've resigned themselves to the fact that they deserve whatever they have coming. That's a huge step. In the New Testament, we have a lot of truths written out. And they're wonderful. And some churches spend their whole lives, their whole existence, only teaching the New Testament because we're New Covenant people. We're New Covenant people. We're not Old Covenant people. We're New Covenant Without these stories, without this old covenant, you cannot understand those New Testament truths. The whole picture of Jesus is being laid out before us in the person of Joseph. Not perfectly, but there's a whole lot of things we can ascertain from the way Joseph responds to his Jewish brothers, which explains a whole lot of things that are about to happen in our world today as Jews will get their second chance to receive their Messiah that they rejected the first time. This is the second coming of Jesus that we're reading about right here. It's so important to understand this and to get the heart of the Father towards them, but also towards us. So I just can't express enough how important this is. They have come to the place where they understand we're getting what we deserve. When any human being understands that God is awesome, beautiful, perfect, loving, gentle, gracious, merciful, and all of that, and I see that in the difference between me and him, I deserve hell. That's the beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where it starts, that understanding, this complete repentance here. Hey, send me. There's absolutely nothing I could say to you that could justify the things I've done. You're just, I'm not. And that's when the good news steps in of Jesus Christ. I'm glad you see it. This whole thing was meant to bring you to a place where you can see your guilt, where you can see your shame, where you can see the difference between holy and unholy. Now, I've got great news for you. My son, Jesus Christ, has taken that penalty for you. It helps us understand. And all of a sudden, the weight we felt of guilt, shame, and we deserve it is now lifted. And that's what's happened here. He says his response is very simple in verse 17, but he said, Joseph said, far be it for me that I should do this. So uh, the man whose hand the cup was found, uh, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Well, that ain't going to happen. I mean, they can go, but there ain't no peace about it. You remember what he told them, and that's what we're going to hear the whole thing over again right now. As Judah comes up close to Joseph and whispers in his ear, let me tell you what this is going to be like. There ain't no peace that's going to happen. We're going to go back to our dad, and we're going to tell him, the one you told us and made us promise that absolutely nothing was ever bad going to happen to him, guess what? He ain't with us. And so he's going to try to explain to Joseph, this is going to kill my dad. But I want you to see Judah's heart as we read this. This is a huge step for him, a huge change. Nothing has changed with Jacob's love for these two of the 12, right? I love Joseph more than any of you all. I love Benjamin more than any of you all. And it's very well established, and that's how the whole thing started. And yet nothing has changed in those relationships, but Judah's heart has come to the place of, and we'll read it and you can see it. 
Then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant. For you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, saying, he's bringing them back to the first time they met, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his in his old age, who is younger. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Remember when we said that to you. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Remember what you said? But you said to your servants, unless your younger brother comes, or youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was. When we went up to your servant, my father, that we were told the words of my Lord. So we told our dad exactly what you said. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is, is not... I'm sorry, if our youngest brother is with us, we have to go down with him, then we will go down. For we may uh, not see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. He's just letting Joseph know, here's the situation we're in when you say, simply, go in peace. It's not like that. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, <clears throat> my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. And, and he's probably right. He's not, I don't think he's exaggerating. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back then you, uh, to you, then I shall bear the blame um, before my father forever. I told my dad that I was... I'd bring him back and that I was surety for him. Now, therefore, most important verse of the night. Please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? That's huge. Nothing's changed. Dad doesn't love me more, won't appreciate me more, but I love my dad so much that I can see what this would do to him. And honestly, I think he'd be alive if I was left. But Benjamin returned to him. That's a hard pill to swallow as a child. I know he's an old man or an older man. I don't know how old he is at this point. And yet, I know that my dad has a favorite. And I know that he would still live if I stayed here as a slave and he went back. This is so sacrificial. This is so amazing. He doesn't need to try to earn favor. He stopped trying to be as good as Benjamin and Joseph. He stopped trying to um, uh, even surpass them or, or even get rid of them. What a great opportunity to get rid of those two pesky brothers of mine that are stealing love from me. From my dad. Maybe if they're both gone, dad will 
look at me once. I mean, I don't want to put all those things in there, but there's a lot going on here. And for Judah to say that, why don't you just let me stay here? I don't want my dad hurt. You know, that's, that is true love right there. That is true love of a son for a father. That's an amazing love. Joseph is happy. He's not going to show it, but this is going to be super pleasing to Joseph, right? This is the test. This is what he's been waiting for. Will these guys take the opportunity to go in peace with all the stuff they can carry and leave this pesky younger brother with me in my good care, but they don't know that? It's a win-win, so to speak. But they don't. Judah surprises him. Chapter 45. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, make everyone go out from me. Just the Egyptians, by the way, not the brothers. The brothers are freaking out going, he is losing his mind. You know, he's starting to, you know, you know, you guys, when you try not to cry in front of somebody and you start to, you know, you do that thing and you try to get alone or what, maybe you don't know what I'm talking about, but I've been there and the snot and the slobber and everything's about ready to flow. And so he's in that. So these brothers are going, you know, they're just watching him. Oh, here we go. They don't know. Make them all go out for me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud and the Egyptians uh, uh, and the house of Pharaoh heard it. So they're like, you know, shuffling out of there as fast as they can. Boy, he's flipping out. We've never seen Joseph act like this before, you know? And so you know as soon as those giant, I picture these giant gold doors. I don't know if you do or not too. Giant gold doors, you know they had their cups right on the, right on the doors. What in the world is going on there? Shh, Bob, you know, can't hear him. Bob the Egyptian, you know, common name back there. It's in the hieroglyphics. He lets them know. It's, it's one of the most beautiful scenes. And please remember what we're watching. This is an actual story, right? Real people. This is the second coming of Jesus, though, with the nation of Israel. So watch this. This is how Jesus will respond to the nation of Israel at his second coming. Everybody out for me. And he said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, there's where we understand where we are in the famine. These two years, the famine has been in the land. And there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. That's so important to hear that. Do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. I don't even want to think that way. I don't want you to think that way. This was all a part of God's plan. Now, I've got some cross-references. Are you ready? 
A lot of them. Oh, good. That's an extra page. So it's not as thick a stack as I thought. In the second coming, when the second coming takes place, there's some prophecies about this. Where do I start? Where do I start? Okay, let's start here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It's a real short one. It, it speaks of how Jesus, before Jesus came, that this is how God spoke. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. Okay, so he speaks to us now through his son, Jesus Christ. But before Jesus came to earth, he used to speak through the prophets and the fathers and so on. And I think we're reading one of those stories right now. But let's go to the prophets, which is where my next uh, cross-references are. How did God speak like Jesus through the prophets? Zechariah 12.10 says this, And I will pour on the house of David, the nation of Israel, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, then they will look on me, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. One of the most powerful passages in Scripture. Zechariah 12 begins with, Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord said, and it is a quote all the way through. So what we're reading, these words are from God himself. God the Father says this. Let's read it again so we understand how important this is. And this is the scripture you show Jehovah's Witness, by the way, when they come to your door. If you don't know any other scripture, this is the one you take them to, even in their Bible that they've edited. They have not edited this. Yahweh, Jehovah, their Jehovah is saying, and I... Jehovah will pour out on the house of David, Israel, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they've pierced. Jesus is not some weird brother of Lucifer. He is the son of God. He is God come in the flesh. They will, mourn, they will look at me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Even God trying to describe the Trinity had a conversation with Mariah and Bo about that yesterday during their Bible morning Bible study. You know those questions? Dad, I don't understand the Trinity. Who does, kid? Moving on, you know. <laughs> Even God, when he's described, well, it's like an egg. No, it's not, because an egg has separate parts. It's a shell. It's the white. It's the yolk. Well, it's cute, but you can separate those. You can't separate God. Well, it's like a hand with two fingers and a thumb, it's, but they're all one. Nope, doesn't work. None of it works. Well, it's like water, ice, uh, uh, steam, uh, and, 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 well, the flowing stuff, water, water, you know. No, because it's got to be all three at the exact same time. At the exact same time, they all have to be there equal, and yet there's an order. There's no way to describe the Trinity. So even when God is writing a prophecy about himself, they're going to look on me whom they pierce. They're going to mourn for him. Even he's toggling between third person, first person, trying to figure out how to describe it to us, granted. I'm not saying he's dumb at all. I'm saying he's trying to describe how a watch works, you know, to a third grader or a second grader or whoever, you know. Uh, we're just kind of that way. Well, it's kind of like this. There's a big hand and a little hand. Never mind. Just keep the time, you know, kind of thing. Beautiful verse. Beautiful verse, beautiful prophecy. They're going to mourn for him. Zechariah 13, 6, later on, still describing the Messiah, says this, and one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And he will answer, 
those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Silence, right? My enemies, those who didn't understand me, those foolish people that didn't understand who I was. No, even here in prophecy says I was wounded in the house of my friends. Joseph here is giving the most gracious, beautiful response to the very men that sold him into slavery for silver. And at his second coming, at his second revelation to them, although denying his power, we will not have this man rule over us, big sleeves, coat of many colors, now finds himself in a position of, we don't have any choice. Look at him, he's high and lifted up. He's second in command. And Jesus is number two, although considered himself equal with the Father, still two, right? His gracious response to his brothers, Jesus' gracious response to the nation of Israel will be this. I was wounded by friends. Don't be grieved by what happened to me. It was all intended for me to prepare a place for you later on, and now's the time for me. I was sent ahead to make sure you had a place of comfort during that drought time. It's all part of God's plan. He did it for you. Some of the best doctrine right here helps us understand how our Father sees us, how our Father sees the world, how he sees the nation of Israel. How could we be confused when we see this beauty right here in this chapter, all wrapped up in this one story that I guess for a lot of people, well, that's old covenant stuff. <laughs> you, you can't understand your salvation without reading this stuff. You've got to have it. It brings color. I love it. So exciting. So Luke chapter 22, verse 42 saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Talking about the cross. In other words, Joseph says this is God's plan. Jesus says this is God's plan. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Let it please, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands or in his hand. It pleased the father to bruise the son. I think we understand that. I don't think he's like, yeah, this is great. I love hammer and nails into my only begotten son. No, it pleased him. And I think Hebrews 12 tells us that. Looking at Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yeah, that was not a fun day. It was honestly not a fun life for Christ down here on earth. And yet for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and the shame. Willing to, oh no, the, the, the reward afterwards will be amazing. So likewise, when we read about the father, it being pleasing to him to bruise the son, we, it's the same thought. No, bruising the son isn't fun. But the, what's going to come of it? Very cool. Very cool. Now, I don't know if I'm going to read the whole thing or not. I kind of have time. <laughs> I didn't like listening to me drone on through an entire chapter. I, and I, I might not. Romans chapter 11 is a Bible study in and of itself, obviously. We could take time, but it describes, Paul tries to describe anyway, to the new creations in Christ, the Christians, that God's not done with the Jews yet. That replacement theology that is 
still packed into a lot of our minds from different churches we grew up in. See, I, I grew up in a church, never picked up on any of that stuff, so I was somewhat a blank slate when God got a hold of me, so it was easy to write. Not a lot of erasing, but a lot of churches you grow up in or grew up in gave you specific doctrines that aren't true. And replacement theology is one of them. Replacement theology is this, that the church has replaced Israel in all of the promises of God. So all the promises of God intended for Israel, well, they blew it, and we got on the scene, and he gave them all to us. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Complete false doctrine. And that takes some erasing and some scrubbing, and I understand that. It takes time to bring into our, oh, what do you mean? Because we're all going to get saved this way. Paul even said so. We need to be saved like they do. When he was speaking of the Jews in front of that Jerusalem council, and he was describing the grace and the mercy that the Gentiles were getting, and they're like, well, that's fine, but they need to be circumcised, and they need to have this. And he's like, no, 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 no. Paul the Jew, part of the Sanhedrin, said to the Jewish guys, no, 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 we need to be saved like they are. In other words, we need to be grafted in again. We need that grace, that mercy. Circumcision avails us nothing. It means nothing. None of that. So Romans 11, let me read it to you as Paul tries to explain thoroughly what's going on. I say then, as God cast away his people, certainly not. For also I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, as this present time there is a remnant according to, his, to the election of grace, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. Whole Bible study in and of itself there. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. And the rest were blinded, just as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see. He's explaining why they're not getting it like you're getting it, Roman. And ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. There's a purpose for the church. There's a purpose Gentiles got saved. It was to make them jealous. Not as an end result. They're jealous. Good. Now you know what you missed out on. Poof. Hell. No. To make them thirsty. To make them dry, parched. My religion is empty. It's void. They're so full of life and full of the Spirit. And they're claiming their Messiah. That's our Messiah. We need a Messiah to cause them to come to the Messiah. They haven't fallen. Just to make them jealous, it says. Now, if their fall is riches for the world... 
and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh to save some of them. For if they, being cast away, is reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? In other words, if God used their rejection of their Messiah to bring all these other people into salvation, the Gentiles, how much more when he turns his eyes back on them? It's a great salvation. It's a moment like we're reading in chapter 45. It's that beautiful. It's that amazing. And we're going to stand there going, oh, this is fantastic when we're up there. Look at him. Jesus, the Jewish guy. I think sometimes we forget Jesus is Jewish. You know, Jesus, the Jewish guy is with all of his buddies, all of his family. They're all coming to him, you know. And we're going to be like, man, that's awesome. That's a really good salvation that's going on right now. So, for I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I'm provoked to jealousy, those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, the Jews... And you, being a wild olive tree, us Romans, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root of the fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. Don't be some grafted in wild olive branch saying, look at me, you guys are on the ground withering and dying over there, but look at me, I'm sucking the sap. You know, something like that. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but that the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty. Don't be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. This is a smackdown. There was an attitude in the church just like what we see with replacement theology. Those dumb Jews over there, they don't even know what they're missing. They don't even know. Yeah, look at us, you know. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Don't even be thinking that way. Because if he snapped them off from unbelief, he could snap you off too from unbelief. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, abiding faith, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is a wild by, was his wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? In other words, it's going to be a lot easier for them to be grafted in than it was to get you folks grafted in. Paul's laying it down. Man, we got to hear it. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. And that is what the church is ignorant of. Anytime Paul says that, I don't want you to be ignorant of the gifts of the Spirit. We're ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant of Israel. We're ignorant. Anytime he says that, pay attention when you're reading. Because that is probably our weakest spots in our faith. I don't want you to be ignorant 
of this mystery. It is a mystery, but don't be ignorant of it, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of their father, for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that they through mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. In other words, you got saved because they rejected you, and likewise, they're going to get saved because of your mercy that you've been shown. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and amen. That's where Paul kind of stops and says, it's just amazing how he worked this out. It's just amazing. It's hard to describe. I hope we understand that. What we're reading in chapter 45 is the second coming of Jesus Christ and the nation of Israel receiving their sold Messiah, but receiving them, receiving him. Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you soul be here, for God sent me to preserve your life. Verse 9. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. Go back and tell Dad, I'm alive, and that he can come down here. It's going to be great. I'm going to take care of him. I'm, like, I'm in charge of the whole place down here. You know? And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. What would you talk about? I just, I'm trying to, remember that one time I threw you in the pit? Oh, that was a, just, now, we hated that coat, man. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. You don't think that would happen in Egypt, do you? But Egypt's watching going, this is great. Joseph's great. His brothers have to be great too. <laughs> they don't even know. But, you know, he's got to be, there's 12 of them, that's going to be great. Yeah, you know. Say to your brothers, do this. Load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and his households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat to the fat of the land. Now you are commanded do this. Here's what I want you to do. Pharaoh's saying this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones. You guys don't need to walk all that way. It's a tough road. And your wives, bring your father and come. Also, do not be concerned about your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. I got to get the corning where, you know, no, we got way better than that. I mean, we got Crusette here. We're good. 
just, just get your stuff and come. We'll cover anything that you leave behind. Then the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, 10 donkey loads with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away and they departed and said to, and, and he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. Circle that in your Bibles. So important. I know I've said that a lot during this chapter, but you can tell I'm fired up about this chapter. It's easy to have those second thoughts. Oh, God, it's so good. He's, I'm so bad. I'm just, and all of a sudden you find yourself in that place. I don't know. Starting to doubt. Am I, am I saved? Did I do the right thing? Was it right? Sometimes I feel so great. I'm having my quiet, but then when I get, I don't know, I just blow it and I come home on a Monday and I wish, don't let yourself become troubled. Your salvation is as secure as Jesus says it is not as secure as you feel it is. Let me say that again. Your salvation is as secure as Jesus says it is, not as secure as how you feel it is. Don't become troubled along the way. He's even concerned about that. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father, and they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he's the governor over all the land of Egypt. (laughs) Jacob's heart stood still. I think we killed him. You know, (laughs) maybe a little more tact next time, you know. Okay, Dad, you're going to want to sit down for this. Remember we told you Joseph was dead? Well, he's really not, first of all. We found Jacob, or we found Joseph, and he's in charge of everything. Jacob's heart heart stood still because he did not believe them. What What are you knuckleheads up to again, you know? But when they told him all the words that Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts with Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. It's kind of funny because Jacob loves stuff. You know, it doesn't say the spirit of Israel revived. It says that Jacob, Jacob there's a lot of stuff. Jacob revived. And then Israel said, so then it switches back. He gets his, shakes his mind off of, oh, look at all that gold. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's about, it's about my son. Then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. What a great Wednesday night, huh? I like it when we end on this stuff and not some, well, you know, some of the stories get a little iffy sometimes to leave on. Be encouraged. Be encouraged in your faith. Understand God's heart. We just saw it laid out for us. God wrote this down, immortalized it in his word so that we would never forget. When we begin to, I'm not so sure God thinks, you know, very highly of me or whatever. He writes it all down for us. That's why we read the word of God daily, because we do get troubled along the way. We do doubt. We do wonder. I'm not sure he thinks of me like I think he thinks of me, or like I used to think he thinks of me, because I don't think I thought about how much he thinks of me beforehand, now that I think about it. And that's when we get into word, God's word, and we let him speak. We shut up. We get our mind focused on what our father says about it. We look into his eyes, and we see what he decided to tell us about himself and how he feels about us, and we believe that changes us. God's word is beautiful.
Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for writing this down for us because we do get troubled along the way. It's kind of a long journey. We don't know when we're going to go. We don't know when we're going to see you. We don't know if there's going to be a rapture before we die or whether we're going to be six feet under or whatever. We don't know. So Lord, help us to remember your word tonight. That it would be just engraved on our hearts, Lord that you love us with an everlasting love, that this is all a part of your plan, and that you knew you were going to do this plan even before we had sinned our first sin. And even after we sinned our last sin, God, it's all covered under the blood of Jesus. We thank you for this. Thank you for the sound doctrine we get from your word as it interprets itself, as you lay it out clearly and the thread of the nation of Israel throughout from Genesis to Revelation and the beauty of it. And your plan is magnificent. I agree with Paul. Your ways are past finding out. Who'd come up with a plan like this? Who would ever think this way? But you did. And it's perfect. So we love you. We love you. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a good night, guys. If you need prayer before you go, we'd be glad to pray with you.